Hi, I'm Bill Mosley, and you're in the horror basement. <laughs> Lick my plate, you dog bitch. Another bonus episode of the Horror Basement. Coming at you live from the Tennessee Horror News Studios in the basement of Johnny's mom's trailer. Tonight, we're doing another uh, High on the Hog promotional interview. We've got uh, director Tony Wash uh, from Scotchworthy Productions. He's directed High on the Hog. He's uh, been involved in some really great films. One of my favorite films from last year, uh, Skeletons in the Closet. Uh, super chill dude. So we got Johnny's not with us tonight because he's an old man. It's past his bedtime. <laughs> We're here burning the midnight oil. Yeah. How you doing, Tony? I'm doing good, man. How are you guys doing? Good. Wow, Ready good. for tomorrow. Yeah. Shit. So it's, uh, it's nice to be back on the show again. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I remember Glad last time uh, you got me uh, stoked about this movie last time we talked, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about skeletons and I got, got kind of off on this. So, so what was the, how long did this movie, were you involved in the making of this, this thing? I've heard it was like a long, arduous process. Uh, so I was brought on originally, um, Jason Kane, who does all the special effects for, um, pretty much every film that I've produced or directed in the last 10 years. Um, he and I got hired to do the special effects on High on the Hog. And this was like, you know, probably May of 2012. Um, and uh, so we were pretty excited about that. You know, we heard it, that Sid Haig was probably going to be involved and they had Joe Estevez and Robert Sadar attached. And, uh, you know, it was ultimately it's another gig and you know when you're doing special effects work in any kind of movies it's always nice to have uh, uh, an opportunity to do something that you're getting paid a little bit of money for um, and so you know we got hired to do that and then over the next like month or two the producer at the time what is going on over there is there like a satanic sacrifice going on in the background? Organizing the crew and, and, and everything. Um, she had reached out to me and had a couple of extensive phone conversations with me about, you know, producing and directing and, and all. She was asking me a lot of questions and stuff about, you know, kind of the pre-production and developmental stages of, of creating a film and uh, from like a producing and directing standpoint and kind of like what the correct process was. And um, I had pr produced and directed a short film called A Chance in Hell back in 2010, which was a World War II Nazi zombie film. And oh, nice. um, it, it got a lot of attention at that time. And when we had our premiere, we had uh, you know 750 people uh, come to the premiere. So everybody who was there, including this producer lady, um, were, I think, very impressed with kind of how I was able to put it all together 
and promote it and, you know, get a theater full of people there and stuff. And so, you know, and granted, I haven't had that kind of success with the premiere since, but, you know, with, but, you know. with, with the chance in hell, it was really a great opportunity to show people in the industry that were Chicago local um, that, that I had, you know, a little bit of knowledge of the industry and that I was eager to, to do stuff, you know, to be an active member of, of the, the horror community. And so when she saw, you know, when they hired me to do the special effects with Jason, then she started talking to me about all these questions that she had regarding, um, you know, the pre-production process. And apparently the director that they had signed on at the time wasn't really doing a lot of work. Um, from my understanding, the gentleman that was at the time directing the movie was not really contacting his department heads and having the pre-production conversations and meetings that are necessary to adequately prepare for, you know, shooting a movie. Um, and so it finally got to the point where after like the, the second conversation, she wanted to have a third one. And I just kind of got to the point where I was like, you know, if I'm going to be sitting on the phone for an hour to an hour and a half with you, you know, am I getting a consulting credit? Am I getting an associate producer credit? You know, or are you asking me to direct your movie? Because, you know, I, I can't like I'm just your special effects coordinator. I, I'm nothing more than that at this point. And um, and she kind of said she's like, you know, I've been honestly thinking about talking to the executive producer about bringing you on to direct the film. And I was like, well, shit, I mean, if that's the case, please, you know, I'm more than eager to, to take that role. Um, I'd be happy to. And, uh, you know, she went and talked to the executive producer and um, one thing led to another. And I think that they were both just really unhappy with the lack of um, the lack of, you know, attention that the director was putting on the film at that time. So they ultimately decided that, uh, you know, shifting to me would, would be in the movie's best interest. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I, I signed on and had about a month's worth of pre-production time to talk to my department heads and have some Skype meetings where I did rehearsals with my actors and, um, you know, orchestrated as much as I could leading up to us going out to shoot the movie, which was in August of 2012. And then we shot the movie from August of 2012 till, you know, mid September, 2012. Um, we originally were slated for 22 days and added two days because we got rid of a couple actors and had to bring new ones on. So some of the footage that we had shot, we had to reshoot with the new actors. Um, yeah. And, you know, at that point, about a weekend is when I um, became supervising producer on set, along with Sid, um, as well as the cinematographer, Rob's, Robert Patrick Stern, and uh, the three of us, along with Bob Farster, who was, um, it was his farmhouse, that was Big Daddy's farmhouse in the movie, and he lives out near Galena, Illinois, where we shot. So he knew a lot of the people out there and was able to secure a lot of the locations and, and, you know, get extras and stuff to be in the background. And so the four of us kind of wrangled everything on set from that point on. Um, and then the movie's been in post-production ever since, you know, there was an original editor of the film that, uh, that, that was 
a little more drama than it was anything else. And, you know, I think that once we finished that, which was about 2014, um, there wasn't enough interest coming from distribution in the movie. So um, in about tw early 2016, late 2015, there was discussions about um, redoing the edit and uh, and kind of changing it up and making it crazier. And um, and so then we, we went back and shot a couple days worth of stuff, like the stuff with Ellie Church as the DJ. Um, we shot that stuff in July of 2016. And, uh, and then it took another, you know, basically two years to, um, to finish post-production at that point. And uh, I don't know, I stopped being really involved with post-production in like late 2016, I would say. Um, yeah you know, early 2017. Um, so it's just been a, a long process. And uh, at this point, I'm just yeah, glad I'm just go. Yeah. What the fuck was that? Sorry. Fucking the dog came that's, in. My house uh, is haunted. <laughs> um, it sounded like it. Oh, no, it's the door. I need the old hinges. <laughs> but so, yeah, so it's been a long yeah. process. And, and at the end of the day, I'm just glad that the movie's finally out there because a lot of people have put a lot of time into this movie and, you know, been, um, you know, it, they deserve this film to be out there. They deserve to, you know, have the opportunity to tell somebody, hey, I made, I worked on this movie. I was a part of this film in whatever capacity and here's how you can see it. You know, I think more often than not, these independent films, you know, they get made and nobody you know, gives them the attention they deserve when it comes time to distributing them and promoting them when they're out there. And so all the people who were leading up till it's your release, unfortunately have to deal with, you know, putting all this time into something that, that no one even knows got released. Like you telling me that Rondo was coming out. I was like, dude, I thought that yeah. was never coming out. I was, uh, I, I, I got it in the, I got a, a DVD in the mail cause artsploitation, I fucking love those guys. The, they they do like foreign films. Sure. Yeah. Like ninety nine percent of the time, is all of its all their stuff's foreign. It's like the first American film seen from them, and I watched it and it was kind of like the credits were just kind of rolling and I it was like, you know this that and the other thing and then uh, uh, prosthetic effects uh, was your name and and somebody else Scotchworthy Productions and I was like what no fucking no. Yeah, that was just <laughs> my effect supervisor. Yeah, we did uh we did an arm like when when somebody's getting killed in a bathtub that we got we did yeah. an arm that's getting sliced up um and then we did the head that's getting hit with the hammer. Oh, that was fucking brutal. So, I I mean, <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, so I'm I'm interested you should you should uh, burn a copy of that and uh, and send me a link <laughs> to watch it. I don't know if you can do digital copies or not, because um, Lord knows I'll probably never be able to see that movie otherwise. <laughs> I'll, I'll see. I'll see if we can get the digital link, and I'll send it over to you. Cool. Hey Eddie, can you hear me? Yeah. Tony, can you hear me? What other questions you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> What I, w I was saying, uh, but you weren't able to hear me, I said that uh, me and Johnny haven't seen the movie yet, so tomorrow night will be our first time. 
for Eye on the Hog. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope you like it. You know, we, like I said, a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into that movie. So it's, uh, it's got some really good stuff in it. I'm really proud of what we created. It, it, it's a fucking, it, it justifies taking that goddamn long to come out. And I, I do want to say that like everybody from Sid to all the ladies in the film, everybody's been really uh, respond. Like when we post about the screening and stuff, everybody's like down to, you know, share this and that. We never even ask anybody. And uh, I, I suck at names, so I can't really off the top of my head remember, but a lot of the ladies have shared and, uh, you know, they're really active in the promotion of this film too, which is super fucking cool. Cause yeah. I mean, that's, you would think that with indie films, that would be a thing that everybody does, but it's not. Yeah. I, I never really understood why people work on a movie and then didn't promote the movie when it came out, because you'd think that the more people promote it, the better chance it has of getting out there and being successful. And then ultimately, especially people who have a percentage of ownership in the film, you'd think that they would want to promote it more so that they would, you know, their percentage would be worth more. Um, but that's not, that's not always the case. I mean, you know, there's certainly plenty of people that, that, uh, that everybody works with who, you know, just kind of do the, do their job and then they move on, you know, and they're yeah, show up, pick up a check and go home. Yeah, exactly. And it's unfortunate because, you know, the whole point to my web series, world of death, um, that we run like discussing, you know, the whole point of that is is showcasing independent filmmakers short films from around the world. And it's like, you know, as individuals were one filmmaker, one team of film filmmakers, you know, working on a short, but as World of Death were an army of, of independent filmmakers. And, you know, our our ability to get the word out there is that much greater because there's more people. Um yeah. But it's hard to get people off their butts to do stuff. Even take 10 seconds to write a post on Facebook or Instagram. A lot of yeah. people either don't think about it or they don't do it. The online promotion is tedious and it's a pain in the ass, but it's something you got to do. Well, it just you really know? depends on, unfortunately, it really just depends on how, how much is involved. I think ultimately it's just a matter of, you know, you, you promote on, I mean, like, like for me, for example, because I can only speak from my own experience, but like I've got, you know, maybe 2,300 friends on Facebook and I have 1,100 followers on Instagram and I try and make a post every Monday through Friday. I do one post a day that goes to each my Instagram and my Facebook account. And, and it's like, I'll get at, I'll tend to get on average around 50 to a hundred likes on Facebook and anywhere from 20 to 50 likes on Instagram. But, you know, I, it, it's like, and I know that Facebook and Instagram have algorithms and stuff where they want you to buy ads and pay for shit. And that way, you know, more people will see it. And there's movies out there right now that I think are doing a really great job of doing that. Like a couple, like last year or two years ago, night of something strange was everywhere because they were paying for ads on Facebook. And now um, I'm seeing that movie Cherokee Creek everywhere because they're paying for advertisements on Facebook. And so, you know, every time I log in, I see advertisements for that movie. And, 
that's really cool to see, but it's really unfortunate that if I want more than, you know, a third of my, my friends, you know, to look at the stuff that I'm posting, I have to pay for it. And that's really not the point of social media. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about paying for your advertising and a lot of independent filmmakers don't put a certain amount of money to the side in their budget before they start making a movie to pay for promoting the movie. And so as a result, once the movie's done, everybody's kind of like, ah, I don't want to spend any more money on it. So we're just going to let it sit. And hopefully people will like it enough to where they promote it, you know, just right. from word of mouth. And then it becomes famous that way. But that's just not how it happens. Yeah, it's it's it sounds good in theory, but it, it, that's just not because I mean, I've. I have shoved movies down people's throats before and they will not go fucking watch them. Yeah. You know, word of mouth just is, isn't what it used to be. I don't know. Well, there's just so much, you know, nobody has yeah. a long attention span anymore because there's so much stuff out there to consume that it's like, you know, back in like the 1980s and 90s, the movies that you were seeing were basically just studio releases that went to the theater and then went to the video store and mixed in there were a handful of other independent movies, you know, like Troma or Full Moon or, you know, those types of companies. And they were put into the video stores where you get one, maybe two copies on the floor, on the, the you know, on the, the shelves. And, and that's it. But at the end of the day, those were all still promoted enough because back in those times, if you made a movie and sold it, you still made a shit ton of mo um, money. You know, if, if every right. if every blockbuster in the country, which, you know, let's say there was 10,000 blockbusters, each bought two copies of your movie at a hundred bucks a piece, that's $200 times 10,000 blockbusters. Because, you know, back then when, like I used to work at video stores when I was in high school and when you would get the magazine, that would show the upcoming movies that are being released to video cassette or DVD shortly after that, they would cost like 80 to a hundred dollars a piece per copy because they knew that you were renting them for like three or $4 a piece and that you were making a profit off of them. Right. So it wasn't like now where you could go and buy a movie, you know, the same day it's released on VOD you can buy a movie from Best Buy for $10 or $20 on DVD and Blu-ray. <laughs> and so you look at it that way and you say, well, shit, if 10,000 stores buy two copies at a hundred bucks a piece, that's $200 times 10,000. That's a shit ton of money, you know? Yeah. And, and so a company like Full Moon or Troma could propel themselves forward and continue producing content because they were selling content. But nowadays, it's not like that. I mean, I've produced and directed four feature-length movies at this point, and I don't think I've made a profit on any of them. And I'm not saying that I haven't made money off of selling the discs, you know, and going to conventions and stuff. But but ultimately, the sales for the, the physical media, like the DVDs and Blu-rays, pays for purchasing the DVDs and Blu-rays in the first place for making them. And... It pays for me to go and rent a table from a convention and the hotel and driving there and the food for the weekend. And so it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you're not really making any money. And I haven't made money from my first movie, my party and I'll die if I want to. I got two checks 
two residual checks from my distributor, which was brain damage films. Um, I got two checks from them and the total for the two checks was $24. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a shitty game and it's, it's one that, um, I obviously don't bullshit people. You know, I love making movies and that's why I've been doing it for 15 years, but you know, you get to a point and I'm, I'm at that point right now where it's like, I just, I don't know, you know, I've got a lot of people who say, you know, move forward, man, keep pushing. You're doing it. You're making it, you know, you're working with Sid Haig and you know, you're doing some awesome stuff. Your stuff looks great. And I appreciate those compliments, but it's hard when, you know, nothing really comes of these movies and, um, and all you want to do is, is be able to go and make the next one. But if you can't make any money off of them, nobody's going to give you money to make a movie. And you can't just go and make a movie that looks like skeletons in the closet or high on the hog, um, for no money, unless people are willing to work for free. And, you know, <laughs> I'm unfortunately at the point where I can't exploit my friends anymore, you know? Right. It's a damn shame. And like we, we talked to a lot of independent filmmakers, you know, and it's, it's, you, you hear a lot of the same from everybody, you know, people put in fucking, you know, a lot of money and fucking blood, sweat and tears. And then, I don't know. It's definitely a passion thing. I mean, you know, there, there's plenty of independent businesses out there that when they're starting out, it's all about putting money and time in and hoping for something to come out of it in the future. So it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like it, it's a hundred percent unique to starting a small business of your own, but right. typically you get to a point where, where you start, you know, you start seeing the profits coming in and a lot of the problems are ultimately distribution, you know, distribution at the independent level is, is really kind of a, a, a snake and, and, um, uh, just a game for snakes. You know, it's like people looking to take advantage of other people and, you know, artists such as myself, you don't really have the money to invest $10,000 in a lawyer to look over your contract yeah. so you know you kind of say all right well you know i'm gonna i'm gonna put together um you know the, the best of my ability in reading this contract on my own and maybe if anything i'll call a lawyer that i've talked to in the past and i'll ask him an hour's worth of questions on the phone but ultimately you know even that costs 400 bucks or whatever and so you know yeah. you kind of you, you almost set yourself up for failure because you're not protecting yourself. But at the end of the day, it's all about lack of integrity. If people would just be honest with each other and just be like, okay, look, you spent however much money and however much time making the movie, we're going to invest the same amount of time and money distributing and promoting the movie. And that way we're in it evenly. And then we split everything evenly. It's not, oh, well, we get our money back first because we're the distributor. Well, fuck the distributor. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, what are you doing? You're taking something that took a lot of time and effort to put together and you're merely slapping a new poster on it because you, you want to change the artwork for whatever dumb reason. And then you put the movie out there and it's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's just unfortunate because it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult industry to get ahead in. And, um, you know, some people have success at the independent level where they sell copies to fans at conventions and from their website and if you're making a movie for ten thousand dollars that works because you can right. make your money back 
But if you're making movies at the, you know, budget level that we're making movies at, you need the large scale distribution platform to even have any hope at making your money back. And it's just not as easy as it would seem. Makes a lot of sense. The, it, it, it seems like from an out, complete outsider's perspective, it seems like the old, uh, you know, all the old stories you heard about fucking snakes and rats in Hollywood from way back. It's just, it's just rebranded itself. And now they're just in fucking Milwaukee. Well, there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's never changed. The industry is never going to change. The only difference is that it was easier back in the day to make at least a little bit of money back because there was what's called an MG, which stands for minimum guarantee. So, like, if I had a movie like Rake, which has a couple named actors in it, or High on the Hog, which has Sid Hagen in it, you know, the distribution company would come along and say, well, we really want to distribute this movie. We're going to give you $100,000 for worldwide distribution rights for seven years. And after, you know, we make back the hundred thousand dollars that we paid you for this minimum guarantee, after we recoup that hundred thousand dollars, then we split profits 50, 50 or whatever the case may be. And at least then you get that little chunk of money right up front that, that gives you that little bit of hat on the back, you know, here's a little bit of a benefit to all the hard work, but that yeah. doesn't happen anymore. You know, I don't think people have been getting MGs. Uh, some movies still do, obviously. There's exceptions to every rule, but overall, the majority of films do not get minimum guarantees anymore, um, you know, unless you're you're making a movie with, like, Tom Hanks or something like that, or you have substantial acclaim in some respect. Um, so it's it's just tough. Sounds like it. So you kind of come to the point where a lot of small business owners come to where it's like now you're kind of looking at it like, well, do I cut my losses or do I keep fucking going? Yeah, exactly. It's like I have no ill will towards the industry in terms of producing films. I think, you know, having produced, like I said, four features and a number of of um, short films and, and other projects through the years. I've had a lot of really awesome experiences. I've had a lot of really bad experiences and I've made, you know, a lot of really great friends through it all. And I've lost a lot of good friends through it all, you know, and that's ultimately business and that's life. So it's nothing out of the ordinary, but like I said, typically, um, you know, if you start a small business and you invest a hundred thousand dollars in it, you, you start to see some profit from that business as soon as whatever it is that you're producing from that business starts selling. And, 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 you know, at this point we're seeing that these products that we've created are selling, people are watching them, people are buying them, but ultimately the money's not coming back to the people who put the initial investment in, whether it's time or money. And, and so it's just, it's tough. And again, I'm speaking from my personal experience. I by no means, and trying to state the way that the industry is as a whole, because there's plenty of independent filmmakers who are extremely successful at what they do. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times it's all being in the right place at the right time or knowing somebody who can get you, you know, out there. And I've got some really nice connections, but, you know, I'm at the point right now where I need to produce another film that I believe will give me the opportunity to do something have better control over it, 
you know, whether it's creative or on the business end or both. And, and that way then people can see, you know, what, what the vision is that we were envisioning while we were shooting it. And we don't lose control of the business end of it. Um, and hopefully then people will, will give us a little bit, you know, of a better deal and yeah. go from there. But it, it's tough to determine if that's the route that I want to take as much as I want to make another movie. Do I want to go through all the, the, the trials and tribulations to get it made and raise the money for the script and, um, and then make it and then try and edit it and sell it and promote it? Hope it's going to make its money back, you know, all the while, you know, working my job and living my personal life, you know. That's what, I, that's what I was about to say is <clears throat> like you. We talked before, and you've got, you know, you've got a whole fucking full-fledged uh, average Joe job and fucking life. Yeah, it's it's not easy for sure. Um, and I'm not saying that it's like it's like the worst situation ever. You know, I mean, if if it was yeah. if it was the worst thing in the world, then I would just stop doing it. I cut my losses and I would stop. Right. But there's still a lot of positives about it that you know that I love, and I'm very, you know, I. I oftentimes sound very cynical because I am a cynical person and I've been taken advantage of a lot in this industry in the 15 years I've been making films. Um, but there is still a lot of positivity that comes from the film industry. You know, I've been, um, like I said, not only have I made a lot of really awesome friends working on films, but promoting my films through the years, I've really um, made a lot of really amazing friends and, you know, at the conventions and film festivals and stuff. And, um, you know, I've met some actors and filmmakers that I've looked up to my whole life. And that's been great. And, and ultimately, the biggest thing is that I have a lot of people that, that tell me that, that the movies that my friends and I create are really good. And that what we do is, is quality work and that we shouldn't give up because we're good at what we do. And, um, you know, so it's hard for me to to just be like, ah, screw it, I'm done. Because I feel like right. I put in 15 years, so why would I stop now? Right. You do, I mean, <clears throat> not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but anything you're, you've been attached to that I've seen has been a quality product. Like everything. Uh, like, the rake looked amazing. You know, it was a good movie, but those creature effects were so ridiculously dope. Well, and then, you. you know skeletons and, and high on the hog both i mean i mean you guys put together some great stuff you know but i can i can totally see where you're at though uh, yeah it's just it's hard you know it's really hard um but again i i don't think life is easy no one ever said it would be so yeah um, at the end of the day you just have to keep pushing forward and um I don't think if, if every if everybody's dream came true with zero effort, then um, everybody would be going after their dreams. Everybody would be happy. But the unfortunate reality of, of life is that life is tough and most dreams don't come true. And so if you want to try and make your dreams come true, you have to work towards them. Um, yeah. And even then it may not come true. So you have to do everything you can to try and make them come true and, and hope that it, that it happens. Yeah. So. More uh, on, a, on a different uh, 
note, I guess. Uh, you mentioned World of Death earlier. Um, that to me, like, like I don't, I don't think that gets enough attention uh, from you know, because I, I, I hardly ever see anybody talk about it. It's such a fucking cool concept. Like, uh, how did that, how did that come about? Well, and again, it's the same thing. You know, you look at like Crypt TV, for example. Crypt TV gets a lot more attention than World of Death does. And the primary reason is because Crypt TV pays for advertising. And World of Death, you know, we don't make any money from showing these movies. Um, so I'm not going to start putting money from my own pocket into promoting World of Death. Because if I'm going to spend money on things at this point, it's going to be promoting all of our projects, not just World of Death. Um, and you know, if I had, let's say I went to all 400 of the filmmakers that are in world of death and say, Hey, everybody, how'd you like to all invest $20 into, um, you know, $20 into, uh, uh, world of death advertisements, you know, and I you know, 20 bucks really isn't that much, right? You know, usually that's $8,000 and that's 20 bucks a person. From 400 filmmakers is eight grand and eight grand is a decent chunk of change to promote stuff with you know in terms of social oh, yeah. media ads and, and and whatnot and but the unfortunate thing is that you just nowadays everybody's so inundated i think with kickstarter campaigns and indiegogo and gofundmes and you know not to mention funding their own projects that it's difficult for them to shell out the money and i'm speaking from my, my from my own personal you know opinion that you know people come to me and say oh you know and support our independent film and it's like well yeah i mean i and some kickstarters i do support um you know some friends i do put money into and i i pre-order a blu-ray or whatever but at the at the same time it's like you know it's got to be reciprocal to a degree you know um and uh and it's hard to reciprocate because there's so many people. I mean, I'm probably friends with 200 different independent horror filmmakers on Facebook. And if every single one of them came to me and said, can you put $20 into my independent film that I'm trying to get off the ground, that's four grand right there, you know? And and I don't have four grand to buy Blu-rays with. You know, I've got <laughs> other that I, that I have to spend my money on. Um, so... I, I think that it's it's about supporting the community as best as you can, and, and fans of the horror genre are really good about supporting the community. But um, but even still, World of Death is something that you know. There's a million different ways to see scary content out there right now on the internet. So people just it gets lost in the mix, you know, along with everything else that's out there. And so all I can do is continue promoting it because it's a cool avenue to get exposure for filmmakers and if it does nothing else else for me it at the very least introduces me to a lot of independent filmmakers who a lot of which i've become friends with and you know if i'm in a different area like when i was out in california for high here back in april um i met up with a couple world of death filmmakers and i never would have known them if it wasn't for world of death so i'm glad that it at the very least has you know, introduced me to some people who are doing the same thing that I'm doing. And, um, you know, networking is everything in this. Industry. But Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. But I would definitely love to get world of death out there to a larger audience 
Um, and, and there's, you know, there's some ideas that I have, but it's ultimately, you know, boils down to how do I pitch this to different avenues to see if I can get it into a, a larger, um, you know, vein for audiences to see, whether that be a TV network or, you know, um, something like Shudder or whatever, you know, like right now Shudder's got, they, they put short films on Shudder. But they don't have like an avenue of how you watch short films through Shutter. So like you know, if I went to Shutter and said, "Look, you know, what do you guys think about securing World of Death as your avenue for releasing your short film content?" They could say, "Well, that's a great idea," or they could say, "Pissed off, we're just paying independent filmmakers a thousand dollars for their short film and screening it through that anyway." So it doesn't matter. Right. World of Death, you know. I. That's one thing I want to do with uh, our YouTube channel is start putting um, short films on there. Yeah. I would love to do that, showcasing people if that don't have an outlet maybe or something. I know we ain't got that many followers, but, you know, we we could help a little bit, you know? Yeah, and, and every every little bit counts. If you you guys introduced one new fan to my films – then that's one person who didn't know about Skeletons in the Closet and The Rake and High and the Hog prior to you guys talking to me. And that's that's one more fan and that's one more sale of the movie or or rental of it on VOD or, you know, person sitting in your theater during your screening or whatever. So, you know, at the end of the day, every little bit counts. But, you know, my goal at this point is is how do I secure... 10,000 hardcore fans who will support me by purchasing every one of my films, you know? Um, Cause if I could get 10,000 people to do that, hell, if I could get 2000 people to do that, you know, to pay between world of death, you know, a chance in hell, it's my party. I'll die. If I want to the rake skeletons in the closet between those films that I sell myself for my website. If I had, if I had 2000 people buying each of those, I mean, let me do the math here really quick. You know, we're looking at $250,000 if I had 2,000 people to buy every one of my films that I'm selling on my website. Mm. That's a shit ton of money. You know? And it, and that's not asking that much. That's asking. I mean, I've had plenty of people, you know, when, when I first was promoting Blu-rays of Skeletons in the Closet and the T-shirts of Skeletons in the Closet, I had people ordering, you know, $150 worth of stuff. They'd order the T-shirt, they'd order the Blu-ray, and then they'd order the World of Death Blu-ray series, which is four discs, which is like 130 short films, 11 hours of content, you know, for 50 bucks. And, you know, so you, you can definitely find people out there that are like that. But, um, again, it's, it's just a matter of connecting with those people and, and getting them to support you fully. Yeah. Oh, I feel you on that. How you know, like just trying to promote for this show is, <laughs> and like you was talking about earlier about the uh, algorithm and all that. If you ain't paying, ain't no one seeing your shit. Exactly. Exactly. And it's tough, you know. Um, so you know, not only is it hard for you to promote the movie for people to even know that it exists. But then once you promote the movie, if they do check it out, out of the, you know, so let's say there's, there's, you know, 
a thousand horror fans out there, you know, and out of those thousand, we're able to reach 200 of those people, which is 20% is a pretty good percentage. You know, you reach 20% of that thousand, so you're hitting 200 people. And out of those 200 people, let's say on the high end, 50%, so 100 of them go and watch your movie. And then out of those 100 people who watched it, let's say 50% liked it. So now you've got 50 people who liked the movie. And then out of those 50 people who liked it, maybe five of them, which would be 10%, are actually going to go and then purchase the movie. So it's like out of 1,000 horror fans that we're promoting to, only five of them bought a copy of it, which at 25 bucks a piece is $125. That's not a very substantial, um, you know, uh, it's not a very substantial profit margin. But then you look at other films, like I think a movie like Terrifier is a great example of a movie that literally caught fire and hasn't stopped burning since. You know, they made yeah. all believe which I still haven't seen. Um, and then Terrifier was produced for however much money it was produced for. I'm sure it was probably made for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, it looks it looks professional enough for what it was made for. And it's got some awesome special effects in it and stuff. And it appeals to independent horror fans. Independent horror fans want to see blood and guts. That's what they love. Oh, yeah. That's what they want to see, you know. So if a horror film doesn't have all that in it, they don't they don't like it. Um, and then Dread Central is the, the company that distributed it, and they got it on Netflix. So then everybody and their mother watched it, you know. And and as a result, now you've got you know thousands of people who are a fan of that movie, and you know the clown and the director are going and they're featured guests at conventions and stuff, and um, you know that's and now they've got a sequel that got financed and is getting made, and it's like, you know. That movie doesn't really possess anything different than what Skeletons in the Closet had to it. The biggest difference is that the people who distributed it, and I'm not talking negatively against my distributors for Skeletons by any means, but the biggest difference is that the avenue that it was distributed into, being Netflix, was able to get it into a lot more households and in front of a lot more people's faces. Everybody watched it, and Dread Central promoted it a shit ton, you know? Oh, yeah. They, they showed that movie love and they told everybody to watch it. And that's the same reason why VHS was so popular because VHS was produced by Brad Miska and Brad Miska runs Bloody Disgusting. And so Bloody Disgusting probably promoted the hell out of VHS. And oh, yeah. as a result, then everybody you know watched it because they heard about it because Bloody Disgusting gets over 2 million views a month. So if you get 2 million people to hear about your movie and you expect 10% of those people are going to pay attention to it. And out of that 10%, 10% are actually going to watch it. That's still 20,000 people yeah. a month. So, you know, there's something to be said for advertising and that's something that I'm really trying to instill that priority to anybody that I talk to about going into business. I'm producing another film together is, if we don't have a means to promote this film as much as possible, then then we need to reevaluate our, our business plan because the, the promoting of it is where it's going to get all the attention and thus get the sales and the views and the interest and the love. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you can have a... I've 
seen terrible fucking movies blow up huge just because they have the advertisement behind them where we're really really good films just kind of uh kind of like go straight into like a cult status thing where it's got you know a core fan base and that's it because there's no advertising there yeah and it's so frustrating it's as a fan like i can i can only imagine like on the filmmaker and as a fan seeing movies that you really love and you know talking to other horror fans and just being and then kind of giving you a blank stare like i've never heard of that like no but you know and but yet you know everybody watched mandy so oh yeah totally and and (laughs) and a movie like mandy deserves uh an, an audience i mean beyond the black rainbow the director's first movie was was an exceptional film and it it was more of a cult classic and mandy you know, had the attention, you know, it was produced by Spectre Vision, which is Elijah Wood's company. And, yeah. um, you know, they they hit all the big festivals. Um, they've produced some pretty quality films over the last 10 years now that they've been doing it. And so, you know, I'm not surprised that Mandy got blown up as much as it did. But again, a movie like Terrifier, and again, nothing against Terrifier. I enjoy Terrifier for what it is as a gore fest movie. You know, there's some legitimately cool moments in that film, but it's like that movie did as well as it did because it was promoted, because people knew about it, and you know, and thus it's received kind of this cult status now as a result. And it's just unfortunate. I wish that Skeletons in the Closet would have the opportunity to get that cult status as well, because right. Skeletons may not be a great movie. I know you love it, but it may not be yeah. everybody's favorite movie out there, just like Terrifier is not everybody's favorite movie out there, but Skeletons has some pretty cool characters. I think that Ellie Church's widow character and Adam Michael's, you know, Charlie character are great horror characters that people would fall in love with if they knew they existed. Oh yeah, and I'm still I'm still fucking hoping for a series one day. Like, I dream or not. I'm I fucking I want that shit to happen probably more than anybody. <laughs> I appreciate that. I always <laughs> too, you know, we're we're trying to make it happen, but there's a lot that goes into um, into getting something like that produced, and you have to find yeah. producers that want to put the money into actually getting it made, and that's not easy, you know. Yeah, I, I can imagine like a series is something that would be even more of fucking like a money sink than and than a film because you, know, you got an ongoing thing, and then securing rights to movies for them to show, and yeah. It'd be cool, though. <laughs> well, we would produce our own shorts within the episodes. We wouldn't hear the right stuff. Oh, that would be even cooler. Yeah. So each episode would be its own produced show um, without outside content. But even still, that, that involves a lot of work because you have to yeah. be, you know, you have to produce the short film. You have to produce the Widow and Charlie stuff, you know, and, and it all takes time and money. So... Who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm I'm holding out hope. I got <laughs> Well yeah, we uh we... I... Oh go ahead, yeah, sorry. I was I was wondering, this is just for me, because everybody busts my chops because I have a I have this this thing for Ellie Church. Uh I'm a huge fan. Like she's she's been in so much cool shit. Like it's hard for me not to be a fan. I was just wondering, uh you, you said earlier that you kinda uh, 
a lot of the stuff with her as as Mary Jane and High on the Hog was uh, you know, pickups and reshoots and shit. Did you were you, did you bring her in like uh, from skeletons? Kind of was that a thing that happened, or was is just happenstance that she was in both films? No. So back in 2016, when we decided that we were gonna re-edit the movie, re-edit High on the Hog, and um, and uh, and shoot some additional content. Um, the idea to have the DJ character kind of as the narrator, so to speak, to kind of bring the, the, the audience through some of the story um, was was kind of this, this concept that we had discussed. And, and the thought was, you know, we needed to add more nudity to the movie. So let's let's make it a topless DJ. You know, she's basically sitting there naked and, and hanging out and she's super cool and really cute and smoking weed and stuff you know, while she's talking on the on the air and so i handled the casting for the pickup shoot in july of 2016 and i reached out to scott germer who directed found and um the bad man and you know a handful of other films Headless. and and have well no he didn't direct headless arthur cole no? directed headless. Oh, but but they're i it just came to mind because they're connected yeah, yeah, they're they're all connected. Harvest Lake, Plank Face. I think he directed Plank Face. Um, so you know, but regardless, I'd I'd known Scott basically through Facebook as being independent horror filmmakers. You know, we we had back when I had a podcast called It Came from the Underground. Um, this was probably four or five years ago now. Um, we interviewed. Um, God, that actually would have been over six years ago. We interviewed. Yeah uh scott when he did found and uh they were i think our first guests actually on our first episode of it came from the underground and so i've known him ever since so i reached out to him and i said hey scott you know his movies are a little bit racier than my films have been traditionally you know his movies have a lot more torture and sex and stuff in them and uh and so I kind of said, you know, like you, you have a lot of actresses in your films that are willing to, you know, do, you know, put themselves in slightly more uncomfortable positions. You know what I mean? Do you, yeah. do you recommend any actresses that, that from the horror scene, you know, these, these screen scenes that would do a good job at this character? And he recommended Haley J. Madison and Ellie Church. Um, and, you know, Haley J's been in some stuff. Like, I think she was in Headless, and she was in a lot of, um, uh, God, what is his name? Well, I can't remember his name right now all of a sudden. Um, uh, I cannot remember his name for the life of the me. Name, her name sounds super familiar. She's, she's in a lot of movies by, I forgot the filmmaker's name, but, um, like, her name was Coleman. And Apple Cart, I forgot what his name is. But I can't remember his name. Anyways, um, so so she was in a lot of his movies, and so I reached out to both her and Ellie, and they were both you know interested in doing an audition tape. So Ellie did her audition, and uh, and Ellie kept saying that she would, and then she was really busy with work or whatever. And so ultimately, I never got one from from Haley. So it was really just Ellie, and, and which is good because Ellie did such an amazing job that 
I really didn't picture anybody else as the as the Mary Jane character. So once once Ellie sent in her audition, I was sold. And then once I presented it to everybody else, everybody agreed that it was uh, you know it was definitely a good option. And so we brought Ellie in to record for Mary Jane. So I met Ellie for the first time in July of 2016 on the set of, of the Hog. And then after we finished shooting her on High the Hog is when I pursued her for the widow and skeleton spot. Oh. So I was close. Yeah. <laughs> so we you know, so Ellie and I have known each other for three years now and, and you know, I, I respect the career that she's built for herself over the years and I'm really yeah. glad that she enjoys working with me and that we've worked together on two features at this point. I think that's pretty great. Yeah. She's she's in so much shit that I, I just love. So I, I was surprised to see her in like headless because I'd seen her in uh seen her in High on the Hog and seen her in a uh, uh skeletons and then in uh Amazon Hotbox, which is a fucking great film. And uh and then I saw her in Headless. I was like, Wow, she's fucking everywhere. <laughs> yeah, she's in a lot of stuff. Well, and you know her her husband Brian Williams, like the the banded pictures guys. I mean, they produced a lot of films. Guys, they did Found, they did Headless, they did Plank Face, Elvis Lake, you know, Space Base from Outer Space, and you know, Amazon Hotbox. At this point, I think she was in Frankenstein's Create Bikers. They she did that. The first movie Brian did was that Time to Kill. Um, I'm assuming she was probably involved in some capacity with that. Uh, Oh, I can't remember that other movie that was really popular back um, a couple years ago. Um, God, I can't remember what it was called. Oh well, whatever. Was it a uh, Was it Dear God No? No, no, not Bickert's mm-hmm. first movie. Um, that was involved. It doesn't matter. So you know. Yeah. Anyway, she's been involved in a lot of stuff. So it was great working with her, and I I love Ellie. Um, I've had a lot of fun getting to know her and becoming friends with her. You know, she came up for the skeletons in the closet premiere back in September and we had a really fun night. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's been a good time, man. There you have it, folks. Uh, Tony wash, Scratchworthy productions, director, of high on the hog. Like I said earlier, a bunch of other cool shit. Uh, we went a little bit of field from the movie, but that's the thing, man. Uh, it's not just about the movie. It's about like fucking, Get knowledge dropped on you by veteran independent filmmakers. That's what we're here for, y'all. Remember, tomorrow night, Friday, May 31st, 9 p.m., Full Moon Cineplex, nine bucks a ticket, high on the hog. Come on out, mention this interview, and I'll think about buying you a beer. (laughs) Hell yeah. And that's all we got. We out. Peace. Stay spooky. Try not to be an asshole.